This is Matt. I'm the lead pastor at Westminster Baptist Church. Thanks for engaging God's word with us. My prayer for you is that this would be supplemental to your discipleship journey. Uh, If we can connect you with a local church or discipleship group, uh, please contact us at info at discoverwbc.com. We're going to be in Acts chapter 22 today and going into a little bit of Acts 23. We kind of paused at the end of last week and kind of had Paul in the middle of a tough spot. He was uh, dealing with an angry mob. And uh, we closed out last week's message uh, learning that as he shared his testimony, he revealed some of his weakness. He defended his faith very strongly in front of the mob. And then the last verse that we read last Sunday was in Acts 22, verse 21. It says that he said to me, go because I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning. Paul's uh, conversion is going to be uh, talked about as he defends him, his, uh, his faith. And he's going to emphasize the resurrection as well. And throughout um, this text that we're going to read this morning, we're going to see God is sovereign. We're going to see all the things that happened to Paul was not a surprise to God at all. And we're going to see how making the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ the focal part of his defense, it made it very difficult for the critics to question his act of obedience to follow God's intervention that directly came from the Lord. Let's look at Acts chapter 22, and we're going to begin reading with verse 22. They listened to him up to this point. Then they raised their voices, shouting, Wipe this man off the face of the earth. He should not be allowed to live. As they were yelling and flinging aside their garments and throwing dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks, directing that he might be interrogated with the scourge to discover the reasons they were shouting against him like this. As they stretched him out for the lash, Paul said to the centurion standing by, Is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? Let's stop there for a moment. Let's examine Paul's reaction here to the angry mob, because I think we can learn some principles from this. First of all, Paul at this point remained very calm. Uh, He didn't retaliate with anger. Instead, he responds with gentleness and compassion. He doesn't attack. And he exemplifies what we teach here at WBC, and that is to seek first to understand. And we can apply this to any situation, I believe, that we encounter, whether it's a disagreement with a coworker, a classmate, your spouse and kids, or an angry mob. Seek to reason or understand first. Seek to bring peace and re- uh, resolution first. Seek victory in your conversations and relationships. And secondly, we see Paul showing courage. He did not cave in or compromise in the midst of this opposition. He spoke the truth in love, and he let the results fall where they fall. We can practice this as well. We need to love people enough to speak truth into their lives, but have grace enough not to judge or try to devalue anyone. 
our worldly culture will continue to be offended by the truth of the gospel until the scales are removed from their eyes, much like Paul had experienced on the Damascus Road. We are not responsible for the results of preaching the gospel, but we are responsible for sharing it. God's going to do the saving. It's our responsibility to be the witness. So I ask you, church, are you ready to defend your faith? How are you feeling about that? Are, Are you feeling equipped to go into spiritual battle? I hope you are. And if you're not, then we can train you. We can help you have the courage you need to stand firm on the Word. Let's continue on with verse 26. When the centurion heard this, he went and reported to the commander, saying, What are you going to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. The commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, he said. The commander replied, I bought this citizenship for a large amount of money. But I was born a citizen, Paul said. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. The commander too was alarmed when he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and he had bound him. The next day, since he wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and instructed the chief priest and all the Sanhedrin to convene. He brought Paul down and placed him before them. The bottom line here, it's gone, what's going on, this crowd wanted to kill Paul pretty much. Even though he exhibited love to the people of Jerusalem, the people still rejected him. He was rescued from the crowd and now taken for examination. And we see the method that was uh, wanting to be used here was flogging. Now the Roman flogging, as you probably know, was inflicted with these short whips embedded with metal and bones and sometimes broken glass attached to a wooden handle. It could kill a man or leave him permanently disabled. It was brutal, brutal method of punishment. And it was this kind of punishment, as you most of you know, that Christ received when he bore our sin and punishment on the way to the cross. It was the religious leaders that treated Jesus so harshly. And now they're doing the same thing to Paul. I came across uh, a writer that put it like this when it comes to religious leaders. God has a large fan fan club that shows up on Sundays raising hands and applauding but he has a much smaller crowd of disciples who are willing to walk and follow with him. Just before the flogging begins, it says he was stretched out, ready to be lashed. Paul asked the centurion this vital question. He says, is it legal for you to scourge a man who is a Roman citizen and is uncondemned? Now Paul knew, of course, that this was illegal. To subject Paul as a Roman citizen to this kind of punishment of this magnitude, it would have destroyed the commander's military career and may have cost him his life. Now a commander uh, oversaw, he was a leader of like 600 to 1,000 people, much like a centurion is a leader over about 100. So this man was the officer in charge of the whole Roman garrison in Jerusalem. The commander was determined to find out what caused the riot. And from this point on, Paul's journey to Rome began. But it would not be quite as he had planned. 
And so the point here that I want to share with you is this. We are God's, we see God's sovereignty in Paul's story. We see God's sovereignty. God was behind the scene of all that was happening, directing the whole affair. It was not a surprise to God. God sent Paul to take the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem, and now God is sending him to Rome to take the gospel to the Gentiles. The Jews were not upset about Paul preaching to the Gentiles because there were Gentile converts already in Judaism. Their objection, though, was that they were getting the privilege, if you will, of following God without becoming Jews first. In other words, without being circumcised and accepting the law. Now Paul accepted this situation that God had orchestrated. Facing persecution never caused Paul to be unfaithful. Paul actually used this really tense situation as an opportunity. The mob had gathered really not to hear him preach, but rather to kill him. But he used that opportunity to preach how God's power had transformed his life. The Roman captain now had two serious problems to sort out and to solve. First, he needed to know and let the prisoner know what the official charges were against him, since that was Paul's right as a citizen. But secondly, he also needed to have some official charges for his own records and to be able to share with his superiors for accountability. Yet nobody seemed to know what Paul's crimes were. What a tough place for this Roman official to be in. Now, the logical thing was to let Paul's own people try him. So the captain arranged for this special meeting of the Jewish council that we call the Sanhedrin. This group uh, was composed of about 70 uh, leading Jewish teachers with a high priest presiding over that. And it was their responsibility to interpret and apply the Jewish law to the affairs of the nation and to try those who violated that law. They also as a council, had been given permission to impose, you know, capital punishment if the offense deserved it. Now, Paul's appearance before the Sanhedrin marks like the fifth time that this group was called upon to evaluate the claims of Jesus Christ. Five times the gospel had been proclaimed. Five times its members rejected the truth. Not only did they condemn themselves by doing so, they also symbolized the nation's rejection of the Messiah. We see this tragic theme running through our story here in Acts, the story of the growing church. It's this sad story, if you will, of Jewish opposition to the church and to the gospel and the constant harassment by religious leaders to stick to tradition. They rejected Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. They crucified Him. And now as a nation, they reject the ones who are preaching the very message of forgiveness and salvation in His name. And throughout our study of Acts so far, we've seen opposition and persecution beginning. At Pentecost, when the apostles were baptized in the Spirit, and all of a sudden they broke out speaking all these other languages so that people could hear the, the Gospel. And then we see it break out again uh, involving the stoning of Stephen, of which Saul, who later would be Paul, was there and present and oversaw all of that. 
And now as chapter 23 opens, if you look at this next uh, couple verses with me, Paul again is facing much opposition. Look at verse 1 of chapter 23. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. The high priest Ananias ordered those who were standing next to him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. (laughs) It's getting serious now, right? (laughs) We're going to come back to that. You were sitting there judging me according to the law. And yet in violation of the law, are you ordering me to be struck? Those standing nearby said, do you dare revile God's high priest? I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, replied Paul. For it is written, you must not speak evil of a ruler of your people. All right, let's park there. Paul begins this defense by stating this sentence about his character. He says, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience to this day. I'm going to talk a little bit about the word conscience. It can be affected by many things. It can be affected by our past, our poor choices, and it can be affected by the Spirit of God. Because it's not a flawless guide, if you will, The believer's conscience needs to be more and more formed by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. God will judge us as believers by the light they have, whether it's weak or strong. But all of us need to be open to the Scripture and to the Spirit for more light to come into our life and to be growing constantly in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, conscience, I think, is one of Paul's favorite words. He only brings it up a few times in the book of Acts. But throughout his letters, he brings it up 21 times. Conscience is that inner judge or that witness that's inside of us that approves when we do right and disapproves when we do wrong. But here's the thing. Conscience does not set the standard. It only applies it. You get that? It sets the standard, but it, it does not set the standard, but it only applies it. For example, um, the conscience of a thief that gets caught, it would bother him if he ratted to the police about the rest of the gang and sent them to jail. Just as much as a Christian's conscience would convict us if we told a lie about one of our friends. So it works in good and bad situations. Paul had persecuted the church when he was Saul and even caused many innocent people to die. So how could he possibly be claiming to have a good conscience? Well, I believe what's going on here is he is saying from that day of conversion, when his life radically changed, from that point on to where we are right now in the text, he's saying, I have a good conscience from here on out. In fact, Paul continues to talk about the contrast between before Christ and after Christ. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. So here again, we see this radical change, this transformation of a life. A, a, per, a killer, a persecutor of Christians now standing in front of the Sanhedrin, giving out the real truth. So in verse 2, Ananias orders his men to strike Paul across the mouth for the, for the statement that he made about conscience. 
But notice Paul responds to that action by calling out hypocrisy, if you will, of the high priest. He didn't do the calm thing anymore. (laughs) He got a little more fired up. He knew the law. And so he called this man out for looking good on the outside, but being corrupt and hateful inside. Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Now that's a phrase we probably don't use a whole lot anymore. (laughs) So for some of uh, you that are much younger than me, I grew up on a farm. We used to do whitewashed walls by adding lime to water and a couple other ingredients, whip it all up. It was nasty. (laughs) It formed this little foamy, white, milky appearance to it. Basically, it was really, really, really cheap paint, okay? It didn't last very long. A hard pouring down of rain would wash it off, and you'd have to apply it again, but it was really cheap, okay? But it made things look pretty for a little while. It whitened things up a little bit, made it look cleaner, okay? But we used it mainly like on stable walls, some of the older buildings that really didn't matter a whole lot, you didn't want to invest a whole lot of money into. So Paul uses that phrase to call out Ananias. He says, you're looking all right on the outside right now, but you're really weak and deteriorating inside. Now we know historically Ananias uh, was a very short-tempered, violent man. He reigned uh, in his office for about 11 or 12 years And he was one of the most evil, corrupt high priests to hold office. Paul said he didn't know that Ananias was the high priest. Now there's several suggestions to consider here as to why he might have made that statement. Um, I'm going to give you five options and I'll let you kind of figure out which one you want to follow. The first one, perhaps Ananias wasn't in full religious garb and dress since it was an unplanned meeting. That one's a little weak, I think. Um, Secondly, perhaps he didn't know who gave the order because there were so many people around him. Uh, Another option would be because Paul had been away so long from Jerusalem that he didn't know Ananias. All three of them, to me, sound a little bit weak. So here's two other options to consider. Perhaps he was using some irony here to speak somewhat prophetically about Ananias, and I'll touch on that in a minute. Or perhaps he just simply crossed the line out of his passion, out of defense, out of argument. He kind of just lost it for a minute, but then he realized what he had done and who he was talking to, and so he admitted his mistake. I believe the last two possibilities have the most support for us here. Verse 3 ends up being somewhat prophetic because historians now tell us that about 10 years after this event that we're talking about, Ananias' own men would assassinate him. So he did kind of get struck down, didn't he? Um, According to Josephus, he, uh, he stole tithes that were supposed to be given to the priest. And when found out, the Jewish revolt broke out against Rome in AD 66, and he was killed by Jewish rebels. But notice as as soon as Paul realized that he had lashed out at the high priest, he immediately apologizes. And I had to ask the question, why would he do that? Because it seems almost now like after he's made that bold statement, now he's kind of backing down a little bit. I don't think it was out of fear. I think it's basically because knowing the law 
He realized that the law forbade speaking out against the rulers of God's people. And you can find those kind of laws in Exodus 22 that speaks to that. So there's a lesson here for us in our day and time. As soon as Paul knew that he had disobeyed Scripture, he sought repentance. And I, and I was thinking, as we soak in the Word in our groups and in our services, it's going to cause us to repent and ask forgiveness when we act against the Word. Because we're going to blow it sometimes, aren't we? We're going to call out people. We're going to get a little harsh and brash sometimes. But let's not let sin fester or slow cook in our souls. When we blow it, or when you've offended somebody, go to that person that you've offended or wronged and make things right. Keep a short list of that kind of stuff in your life. Don't, don't let it fester. Keep the unity of the body by doing that. Let's look at verse 6 and following. Let's keep going here. Verse 6 says, When Paul realized that one part of them were Sadducees and the other part were Pharisees, he cried out in the Sanhedrin, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am being judged because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees affirmed them all. The shouting grew loud, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party got up and argued vehemently. We find nothing evil in this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? When the dispute became violent, the commander feared that Paul might be torn apart by them and ordered the troops to go down, take him away from them, and bring him into the barracks. Man, it's getting intense now, isn't it? So having somewhat failed in his first personal approach, which was kind of kind, calm, um, you know, he tried that approach. That didn't phase anything. So he went more with a doctrinal approach now. He declared the real issue was his faith in the doctrine of the resurrection. A doctrine, as Scripture just tells us here, over which the Pharisees and Sadducees violently disagreed with. Paul knew that. And he knew that by defending this important doctrine, he would divide that council and soon have the members disputing among themselves. And that is exactly what happened. To the point where the commander now had to send his men down to the floor of the council chamber and rescue Paul again for the second time because they would have just beat him to a pole probably. Now throughout his defense speeches, Paul constantly brings up the resurrection. His belief in this divides the Jews, and in doing so, he identifies himself with the Pharisees. And uh, the Sadducees only recognize like the books of Moses as their authority. And there's nothing in them about resurrection. It's interesting to note also, I think, that Jesus stood trial before the Sanhedrin. And so had his apostles. And now Paul had witness to them. What great opportunities the council had, and yet they continued to be the problem here. They would not believe. This theological position on the resurrection is central to our faith today. 
And Paul writes it very clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. It should be on the screen for you. When he said, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Think about that. Isn't that true? If you take away the resurrection, we don't have any hope, do we? Because that means Christ is still dead in the grave. And we know He's not there. So we have to preach resurrection. Paul had to defend resurrection. Now Paul's situation seems a little bit hopeless, don't you think? If he's released, he will be assassinated probably. If he remains in custody, he's never going to do the work of the apostle anymore by being in jail. But that night, while Paul was back in his barracks, something amazing happens. Jesus appears. And he speaks to Paul. And he assures him that he's going to live to preach again and in Rome. Look at verse 11. This is our last verse to look at this morning. The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Have courage. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. Twice Paul had been rescued from the clutches of a frenzied mob. He had been questioned, beaten, and almost flogged, warned not to go to Jerusalem. He had to be feeling discouraged, don't you think? Maybe somewhat of a bit of a failure. Feeling very helpless. We don't see anything in the passage that showed support from James or other apostles or other elders of the church coming alongside him. Paul was standing alone. How much more could he endure? What was Paul's breaking point? And church, if you're in here this morning and you're like, I don't know how much more I can endure. I I think I'm close to my breaking point. I want you to pay attention to what happens to Paul in verse 11. When he's feeling alone, when he's feeling failure, what happens? Jesus shows up. And he says, have courage. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so it is necessary for you to testify in Rome. The Lord emphasized to Paul, not only did he need to defend himself, but now he needs to prepare himself to be on the offensive, to take the gospel to Rome. The Lord knew what he was facing because he's a sovereign God. And he knows what you are facing today, church. The Lord's encouraging message to Paul is the same message to us this morning. Have courage, church. Parents, have courage. Grandparents, have courage. When you send those kids off to school, relay that message to your children. Have courage. The Lord is with us. He was with Paul. He is for us, not against us, as we do His will. Do you see what God is doing here? He's assuring that Paul, through his witness in Jerusalem, he's assuring him that that was of God, even though he was feeling like a failure somewhat right now. He was obedient to what the Lord had asked him to do, and he's now assuring him that he's not done with Paul yet. He affirms him with the next mission, if you will, which is to be a witness in Rome. 
And our takeaway, one of our takeaways this morning of this is to be assured that as you and I bear witness for Christ in your Jerusalem or your Rome, God is going before us. He's going to stand with you and He's going to encourage you as well. So we too must have courage to go. Take our witness to the five plus billion people who have not yet heard the good news. If you allow me to take a few minutes to share, <clears throat> a couple years ago in Haiti, I had this have courage moment. Um, one of the churches we partner with in, in Makati, Haiti, uh, right down over a hill that you've got to take a kind of a goat trail to go down to. Um, it's kind of a difficult hill to, to journey down. They, uh, they have a sacrifice area down there for voodoo. And every Wednesday, you hear the drums starting, and they have services every Wednesday, pretty much. And I'm looking around, and um, up in the trees, you see things that they use for voodoo and devil worship. They have hair and bones hanging from the limbs, things like that, feathers and so forth. And I've learned to know and understand the culture a little more, so I'm kind of used to seeing some of that in these areas where they have that kind of a service. And so uh, it was one other team member with me at the time, and Mackenzie, our translator, and Barbara, my wife, and uh, Vicky was up in the church praying because they didn't make the journey down. And Mackenzie said, would you like to talk to these two young men? And they were out there sweeping and, and cutting brush out of the way, preparing to have a service. And I'm looking, and they're both holding machetes that are about this long, you know, and they're going like this. So I had a little bit of, okay, there's a little fear going on now. <laughs> and so it was that aha moment of, do, do I open my mouth, and if I do, is God going to give me what I need to say? Anybody been there? Yeah? So um, I listened to their story. I asked what they were doing. They said they were basically preparing for the service, and in their practice of their religion to the devil, they said the more we do, the more we get paid, and the higher we move up in leadership, if you will, in our terms. And so I listened to all they had to say, and I said, well, do you really believe in what you say you believe? And they're like, uh, yeah, I think so. And so I said, well, can I share my story? And they're like, they're sure, yeah. And so I gave my testimony, and I shared the gospel, and I tried to explain to them the difference between having to do all these things for rewards as compared to the fact that Jesus has done everything already for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. And I said, why would you not say yes to what I just shared? And they're like, I don't know <laughs> why I wouldn't. And so bottom line is we prayed together with them. They accepted the Lord and they dropped their machetes and they went like this. <laughs> Amen. To grab their hand, grab our hands and pray. <laughs> and I'm like, have courage, right? And what I didn't realize was the next day we found out that one of those two young men was the, the son of the witch doctor that we had led to the Lord the year before. God is sovereign. God knew that was going to happen. So when God orchestrates those moments, be bold, be courageous, don't be afraid. 
Let God do His thing. He's just working in and through us. Jesus wasn't finished with Paul yet. In church, He's not finished with you yet. As long as we have breath, we can still testify. You may or may not be able to go to nations, but you can testify where you are. In your Jerusalem, in your room, or in your neighborhood. You may not be able to do some of the things you used to be able to do, but you can testify. Some of you still can. (laughs) Some of you still can go. So let's do it. Let's go. Okay? But you can testify. So I want to give you a couple principles, three gospel responses here to wrap up this morning. Number one, do not allow irrelevant cultural issues to take priority over the gospel. An example of that is, let's not pull out one sin and make that the hot spot. Let's let's not dwell on one issue solely because the world is full of all kinds of brokenness. It's all around us. Paul was not just calling out one sin of hypocrisy to one high priest. He was addressing the whole culture and their need to repent of their ritualistic and legalistic practices. Secondly, as the worship team comes forward, would you be willing to adapt to relate to the culture where you're trying to reach? Paul adapted to the Jews and now is headed to Rome to preach to the Gentiles. He knew the audience he was addressing and he knew their customs and their laws. And thirdly, would you be bold and courageous in presenting the Gospel when the opportunity arises for you? God will orchestrate opportunities to share the Gospel. The Lord is with you, church. And our part in that moment is to simply, as Paul did, to obey and to be courageous with our witness. So let's pray together as we close. Father, in our, in our moments of brokenness, in our moments of hopelessness, would You make Yourself known to us, God? If there's one here this morning that needs to see You like Saul did on the Damascus Road, then open their eyes to the truth, Lord. For those who may be discouraged or feel alone or weak or like a failure, Father, I pray they would be encouraged to hear Your voice this morning say, have courage and go testify. May we be a bold witness to this world. May we go light up the darkness with the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, may Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
You have any questions about the sermon or would like to know more about following after Jesus, uh, please contact us and we would love to talk more about your relationship with Christ and how you can grow in your spiritual journey.